0: Welcome to the RSP Cast Quick Game. It is Mark Schofield, Matt Waldman, and congratulations to Cecil Lamy and Sigmund Bloom for their
1: four thousand. Four thousand.
0: Yeah, that's, pretty that's awesome. That's tremendous. Yeah, they. Uh, I, I got a chance to speak with them for about five or ten minutes on their show, and they they mentioned this podcast and you know talked about that fondly in terms of the work that Mark does and you know, and that was really nice to hear because it's always oh. a pleasure having Mark here. Yeah, man. Nice. Yeah, because Mark does some good work, man. I see you everywhere. Like, where are all the podcasts that you were doing? Because, dude, dude, you got Doug Ferrar. you got Kiss.
1: I honestly don't know. I I don't, I have, I have whiteboards, I have calendars, I have notebooks, I have post-its taped around everywhere. I don't know. Most of the time I get like a text message like 30 minutes before something will be like, hey, you're still good to go in 30 minutes. I'm like, wait, what? Yeah, see, Ooh, you're
0: what? See, you're you're like Bruiser Brody or Andre the Giant. You're kind of like this independent, on like the, you know, who just shows up at every place and draws a crowd. So
1: people keep inviting me to things. So I guess I, the way I view it, you know, I will keep showing up until people tell me I can't. I
0: think you that's know? a good philosophy.
1: I, that's kind of how I'm going to roll.
0: I think that I think we've pretty much seen that with two teams that are going to be in the Super Bowl. They keep yeah. showing up and they still being up? told they, that they can't. And so yeah. far, they've been basically saying we're not going to listen to you. So, you know, one is Tom Brady and the and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and all the naysayers about all that and <laughs> there they are and we're smiling about that cuz we weren't one of them and then Nope. The, then the guy that makes us perpetually giggle, you know, Patrick
1: Mahomes. So, <laughs> can, can I just say let us let's, let's start here because okay. I literally just pushed publish on a piece for Touchdown Wire USA today, titled "Why Patrick Why the Red Armor Patrick Mahomes is Football's Ultimate Weapon." Um, and what I did in that piece was literally Mahomes had eight throws this year, Matt, that went forty yards or more in terms of air yards. Okay. And that's just like from the line of scrimmage, but whatever. When you really like dive into where he released some throws, sometimes it's like 50, 60. Here's what he did on those throws, Matt. Four of eight, 222 yards, four touchdowns, no interceptions. A passer rated of 135.4. So not perfect, but darn close. Four touchdowns, no interceptions on throws of 40 yards or more. So I ask you in your years of studying quarterbacks and this guy has made us giggle, but is Mahomes the best, just pure thrower you've seen?
0: Oh yeah. Without a doubt. I mean, I think that you've got to go, I think you've got to go Mahomes, Elway and, and Favre, probably in that order. And you would have at least a respectable three with, uh, at least somebody smarter than us, you know, explaining why there's somebody else on that should also be on that list. But yeah, those guys for sure, and Mahomes. And the fact that he's 50% on those throws, I mean, isn't like 45% like the league average? And that we're not even talking about for, we're not even talking about like down and distance situation, whether he's under pressure or not. Or any of those other added elements. It's just,
1: well, it, yeah. that's just it because I, I broke these plays down. One of them was in week two. He has a rollout to the right. Joey Bose is coming at of but Bose is blocked. But Denzel Perryman, the Chargers linebacker, is dead odd sprinting at him from like an eight yard depth. So Mahomes can't set his feet. Like he's still moving, and his his legs are literally off the turf when he lets it go. He drops it from I think his own like forty yard line to Tyree Kill over two defenders at the opposite five yard line. Like that's just yeah. absurd. And then there's the one you probably remember from Baltimore, right? The out and up to Hardman, yeah. where he's just backpedal away from Marlon Humphrey, who's again dead on sprint from a slot blitz, lets it go from his thirty eight left hash to the opposite five yard line opposite hash which is like if you want to run the pythagorean theorem's number on it it's just absurd okay it's absurd so it's not like like one of them against the dolphins it's a clean pocket yeah and he, he knows like the second he knows you can see him like leave the arm up a bit like you steph curry or jordan he knew the second that it goes touchdown but those two are just insane and then the other one it was against the bucket ears He's got Antoine Winfield in the middle of the field, that post safety, and he takes the snap and he's looking left the entire way. And Antoine Winfield's in the middle of the field. He's like, okay, Mahomes is looking this way. Tyree Kill's running this way. What do I do? So he kind of just like freezes and then Mahomes just uncorks his absolute cannon shot. Like, yeah, Mahomes, Elway, Marino, Rogers, Favre, like, you know, that's probably your top five. But Mahomes on the top five and he ate five, four, three or two, as far as I'm concerned.
0: Yeah. I'm totally with you on that front. And it's funny because you look at him and you realize too, that, you know, I saw Ross Tucker and chase Stewart to two excellent football minds talking about the chiefs offensive line and how you don't need first round picks to build a good offensive line. And I kind of want to explore that a little bit more because my thought was I was going to write something that mentioned Patrick Mahomes in the offensive line. Um, and then I looked at the data and, it, and at least for the past few years, and the chiefs offensive line statistically is not very good when it comes to allowing pressure, um, allowing sacks when it comes to getting quarterback hits and hurries um, this year, only the Washington football team and the Seattle Seahawks were the only two playoff teams with worse pressure data than the chiefs. Um, now, you know, Duvernay Tardif is, you know, helping out humanity and they've had some injuries. But even when they had Kareem Hunt, because I was what the whole article was going to be about was how, you know, you don't need to be you actually you do actually need to be a good pass protector as a as a running back to get in the NFL, even though people will cite Kareem Hunt. But then I looked at the data and it was like, well, the Chiefs weren't all very good when Hunt was really good in, in Kansas City. They weren't all that good at protecting the quarterback, so it wasn't like the offensive line was taking up the slack. It you know, and some of that can be Mahomes penchant from being able to move outside the pocket and maybe incur some pressure. Right. But it's not like he's Baker Mayfield in that respect when Baker Mayfield before the training wheels got put on, you know, yeah. and he and he made improvements. Um, but this is one of those teams that you just look at him and you realize it's like they understand their personnel. They know that it's worth the risk of him taking some shots or having to hurry or throw the ball away and that maybe, yeah, it's the the offensive line isn't the strength of their team. Um, but at the same time, to have Kelsey Hill, Hardman, and all those guys who can run so well after the catch and who can beat you deep as well at any moment. Even Byron Pringle. I mean, you watch Byron yeah. Pringle lately and it's like they might keep that guy. Um, You know, it'd be interesting because he's he's certainly looking interesting from that perspective. But the fact that they have all these weapons, yeah, this is one of those situations I think, Mark, tell me if I'm wrong, but this is why one size doesn't fit all when we start looking at the data for offensive lines. It really does depend on the scheme and the personnel, the talent of the skill players of how good
1: your line needs to be. Right. I mean, to take it through the context of this game – you need a better offensive line in front of Tom Brady than you do Patrick Mahomes. I mean, you need to protect Tom Brady. You need to protect those eight gaps. All the things that people have written about this week and talked about this week and Steve Spagnuolo and NASCAR packages, Like, you need to protect Tom Brady differently than you protect Patrick Mahomes. You're willing to sacrifice some protection at times with Patrick Mahomes because of what he can do. You don't want Tom Brady taking some of those hits. You don't want Tom Brady sort of played scramble drill mode the way you do with Patrick Mahomes. And so, yeah, you have to, you know, not offensive line is not like a one size fits all kind of thing. Like it has to be tied to the scheme. It has to be tied to the quarterback and what the quarterback does well and what the quarterback individual weaknesses are, you know, and and to just touch on Mahomes for a second, you know, you and I have known, I think in the back of our minds, even though we didn't say it at the time, um, that this kid was going to change the evaluation game at the position. Like, we knew, um, and maybe we didn't come out and explicitly say, hey, guys, this guy's changing the game. You could read between the lines when we talked about him. And I think one of the things that Mahomes has highlighted over the past couple of years is that, you know, if you want to succeed in today's NFL as a quarterback, you have to have some level of mobility and ability to extend plays on your own. Secondary movement skills, footwork, or just an insane arm that – If you don't have room to escape, you can create that room via arm angles, arm talent, launch point, whatever. Um, So as we start turning from this game to Trevor Lawrence, Trey Lance, all those guys and then the guys beyond, you know, you don't have to have the Mahomes arm. You don't have to have his level of talent. But you have to have some of those abilities. Otherwise, you're just a sit and duck back there. And then you will need that offensive line so it gets to a roster construction standpoint. If you're building an offense and a roster around a potential quarterback, it's probably easier to do it for guys that have that level of talent, even if it's not Mahomes level, than the guys that might be sitting ducks back there, in which case you might have to address offensive line earlier in the draft, maybe not first round, but day two, early day three. Otherwise, You might have the guy, but you can't protect him, and it falls to pieces. Yeah, I mean, it's like we're going to have to start
0: naming these quarterbacks and their styles kind of like different types of industries, like one's a manufacturing plant, one's like a, you know, maybe one's a a food plant, one's a pharma plant, and the other one's like a a car plant, you know, and, and talk about the differences with doing that. But really, when you think about Mahomes and this game, I I know that they dominated the 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 Tampa Bay Buccaneers earlier this season, um, but now you think you know now you're starting to see things where people talk about Devin White, how Devin White can neutralize Patrick Mahomes. You know you got Levante David, Devin White, really fast linebackers. They can get downhill. It certainly did a number on Aaron Rodgers, who would I would argue from the standpoint, you know, you just mentioned it. He's a guy who can create like that, who can move like that. Has that ability to to run around the pocket, but at the same time, his scheme isn't wide open anymore. His scheme was play action, roll out. You know, he was kind of contained, and then as a result, his scheme kind of locked him into a into a cage with basically something that's just as fast as or someone but someone just as fast as him and able to come downhill and just get rid of him you know in terms of neutralizing his ability to throw the ball on the move in Devin White but with with Mahomes and now they've got Barrett and Pierre Paul and White and David what happened in the last game that made that neutralized the Buccaneers defense and how are they going to try and change that you know, this this week, can they change that?
1: I, I, I don't know. And what's fascinating about that game, because I've spent so many hours of my life trying to figure out how you stop Patrick Mahomes, how you stop this offense, you know, it seems like every time I do it, I feel like that that meme from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia with Charlie Day in front of the bulletin board, and he's got the cigarette in one hand. He's got the lines drawn on the bulletin board. And I'm like, look, if you could double cover Tyree Kill, if you could double tr- cover Travis Kelsey, if you have an athletic nose tackle that could spy Patrick Mahomes, like you could do it. I was talking to Doug Farrar the other day on the phone, and we were talking about trying to defend the Chiefs, and I'm like – you know, these are the things you can do. And you want to do the bell check thing of make them fight left handed. And I'm going on and on and on. And I'm running my mouth like I am now, like 500 miles an hour. And Doug finally shuts me up. He's like, Mark, their left hand is Travis Kelsey. Like, you make them fight left handed. They're like, fine, we'll hit you with Travis Kelsey. Like, they have so many weapons. But what was interesting about that week 12 game, so many teams try the approach of we're going to force you to run the ball, right? We're going to play cover four. We're going to play light boxes, three, two, six, you know, four, one, five, or whatever. We're going to force you to dare you to run the ball and make Patrick Mahomes a spectator. The Buccaneers tried that. Kansas City didn't take the bait. They read it 17 times. The, the Buccaneers have a very good run defense. And so they were like, forget it. And that was without Vita Vey. He was hurt for that game. They read it 17 times. They let Patrick Mahomes throw it 49 times. They were like, you're a good run defense. Devin White, Levante David, you just mentioned them. We're not going to run, ban our head against the ball. We're going to throw the ball. And so they're not going to take the bait. They didn't take the bait in week 12. Can you get them to take the bait now? I don't think so. They're going to stay where they want to be, which is throwing the football. If your strength of this Buccaneers defense is stopping the run, Kansas City, they're, to, they're not going to do that. They're not going to fall into that trap. Now, again, teams seems like Buffalo, Miami, the Broncos have tried this. They were willing to run the ball, and they did it well against those light packages. They're not going to do that, which means this whole game might come down to, Antoine Winfield, Carlton Davis, can they cover deep enough into the down? From what I saw in Week 12, I don't think they can. No, I don't think they can either. As good as Antoine Winfield is going to be and as he already
0: is now, he's not Ed Reed, okay? No one's Ed Reed. And I think that when I keep thinking, as you were talking about all these different ways that they could possibly, someone would try and think of trying to stop the Chiefs, I think the only guy I can think of is, They need Ed Reed. They need to basically play one high, and they need to have cover corners who are worth their salt to be able to beat up and stick tight to Kelsey and Hill, which is such a tall task. How else can you do that? Because Reed is the only guy who can cover the field who might outsmart Patrick Mahomes. Might.
1: Yeah. You need the legion of boom in their prime, plus Ed Reed, and maybe slip it Deion Sanders while you're at it. Otherwise... And, of course, look, I'm saying this now, and, of you know, Tampa Bay might find a way. I don't see it on paper. I just don't. Yeah. They just have to the, – the,
0: the only way it happens is Tampa Bay start – or, excuse me, Kansas City starts slow, which they sometimes do. Yeah. They make some mistakes. Patrick yeah. Mahomes makes some mistakes early. And then the defense just gets shut – you know, basically run over by um, Tom Brady, who yeah. has absolutely proven. Again, the big thing is – you know, with quarterbacking, can you move away from pressure and find the open man? Whether you're Brady, who's basically a tap dancer, who can, you know, who's just as slick as one of those old, old time tap dancers to be able to just, you know, move the way he can in tight space and, and get the ball out in rhythm. Or whether you're Mahomes, who's like a a ballet dancer or a gym or one of those, I think of the Bernie Mac show again every time I'm on this thing, but like the son who the nephew who wants to be a rhythmic gymnast with the big yeah. twirly thing, you know, Patrick Mahomes is basically the football version of that. When you watch him move around, you know, it's like the pocket, for the the really behind the line of scrimmage for him is one big open, like gym mat for him to like, to, to do a performance, you know, in terms of the way that he moves on the field. So yeah, it's a, it's fascinating, you know, and it's funny because I heard some analysis this week and we can go back to the, the, the Super Bowl anytime you want to, but this just kind of, as I was thinking about Mahomes and you were talking about what he does, uh, I heard some really good analysis while watching Matthew Stafford this year where someone was like, Matthew Stafford in some ways was arguably the precursor to Patrick Mahomes because they started showing some of the throws that he made that were very similar to what Mahomes does um, the difference is, is that the Lions have not been a winning team, and Stafford hasn't had the quality of receiving talent. And sometimes he's made enough mistakes that you know he doesn't get the glamour for that. He's more, he's been seen more as a as an up and down player. But here he goes, Sean McVay's offense, Jared Goff now in in, in Detroit. What do you think of this trade? Take any angle you want.
1: I mean, there are so many angles to this trade. Um, Obviously, a lot of people dove in first, the Stafford side of it, and what he means to the Rams. You know, I I think what that tells us is Sean McVay wants a decisive quarterback, and decisiveness has never been Jared Goff's forte, at least during his time in the National Football League. Um, You know, when this trade came out on Saturday night, like everybody else, I immediately turned on Stafford film. And the first three throws I saw from his Week 17 game where it's, takes a snap, hits his drop depth, the ball is out. Receiver might not even be open, but he knows he's going to be open. And, yes, it's against the Vikings who were a bad defense, but this is a decisive quarterback, like period, full stop. And so I think that's what Sean McVay is traded for. That's what Les Snead has traded for, a quarterback who's going to be decisive. And, look, the indecisiveness from from Goff has been a through line of his entire NFL career. You look at the most pivotal play of Super Bowl 53 – he hesitates. He misses Brandon Cooks in the end zone. McCorder recovers, makes up the pass play to break that up. If that's a touchdown, this is a completely different game. Um, but his hesitation might have cost them a Super Bowl. Um, I'm also curious about it from the Lions' perspective and that, can you revive Jared Goff? Can you fix Jared Goff? That's a fascinating question to me. And I've kind of argued – I argued in a piece on the RSP last year. Um, I argued it again now, referencing that piece – that while McVeigh's system in this McVeigh Shanahan, Stefanski tree of outside zone, boot action, play action, props up subpar quarterbacks and makes great talents like Rodgers look even better and have an MVP season, for younger quarterbacks, it might stunt their development. When you do so much from a schematic point to make it easy for them, what happens when the training wheels have to come off? What happens when you run up against a Bill Belichick defense that says, oh, you're going to stay in his ear until the – helmet radio cuts off. We're going to wait till that moment and then adjust our defense. And now you have to figure it out on your own. Your coach can't tell you, Oh, they're at a 3 3 2, whatever, you know, under front with a cover six quarter, quarter half. You've got to figure it out on your own, you know? And, and that was the argument I made um, both earlier in the RSP. And now it's like for all the genius tags that get put on McVay is his scheme really helping or almost hindering quarterback development. And the guy that made this trade from Detroit's point of view is the guy that banged the table for him in L.A., Brad Holmes. So he probably saw something. So can Anthony Lynn unlock Jared Goff? Maybe not. Maybe he's already too far gone. But they've got a window to do it. So it's a fascinating thing. The only other thing I'll mention, the Rams are are slowly becoming that team to test the theory that the draft doesn't matter, right? That the draft doesn't matter. Forget it. You know, first-round picks, they're a crapshoot. Give us proven talent instead. If they figure this out and win a Super Bowl, doing this, you know it's a copycat league. Every other team's gonna be trading away their first round picks too.
0: Yeah, well, I'll be looking forward to the teams that get those first round picks. Um, you know, and yeah. I, but at the same time, I, I'm I'm totally I'm totally on board with different ways to be able to build something successfully. I think that's just yeah. common sense that 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 can happen. Um, but those are some interesting points, Mark, because you know you start with Stafford, and obviously. I just think this is a guy who's never had the surrounding talent beyond Calvin Johnson. And then there's been selected years where he's had the surrounding talent. But maybe he... Something's always been missing. It's either the surrounding talent's hurt, or they've got guys like Chris Durham who couldn't catch the ball when he needed him to, or the scheme wasn't great, you know, or Stafford was banged up and playing through some horrendous injury and there's always been an excuse. And so this is going to be the point where they're going to say no excuses, that one great year you had, the five or six really good statistical years you had but not winning football games. That has to come to an end here for both you and for McVay cuz this is McVay's moment. Now, I'm a Stafford believer. I certainly think that this is a very good quarterback who's been who's been hindered but that that whole decisive thing is is a fascinating point because when you look at Sean McVay, the, I I have some criticisms for him and I've kind of had some long standing criticisms with him as a coach because as smart as he is and was as good as he was as being able to create the scheme that he that he did influenced with, you know from the Shanahan era, I mean how do you go into how do you go into the Super Bowl against Bill Belichick and say we're going to use the same we're gonna use the same simplistic approach that we had before, and it wasn't working for us all the way back since like week 14 of the season, and we and we got exposed, and even even Belichick was like, I watched Matt Patricia and, and the Lions dismantle them in week 15 or week 14 it was, yep. and. And that's what we ended up doing. And, and so McVeigh came in with the hubris, I would have to say, that he, you know, and my buddy, our buddy Eric Stoner mentioned, I remember we were talking about it after the Super Bowl. It's like, how do you come into there and say, we're going to keep playing checkers even though we're playing with a, on a chessboard with a, you know, with chess pieces master. with a grandmaster. How do you do that? And then he never really changed it. They didn't change what they were doing with Gurley until the Steelers game in the in the first you know the second half of the Steelers game, like week ten of twenty nineteen. They didn't change their their ground attack. It's like yeah. he's very stubborn and intractable with what he does. I mean, I joke I joke every once a month about his screen game in terms of like, oh well, we completed one screen. So let's do two more in a row and see what we can do. So as much as he gets like the genius label, and there's there's reasons for that that are positive, there are also things that I look at and go, is he going to do the same stuff with Stafford? I mean, and and is this offensive line good enough? I mean, everybody's like, well, you need a quarter, you know, quarterback because Jared Goff is bad under pressure, and there may be some re- his accuracy may not be good under pressure, and there are some things. With some packages that certainly he panicked with. But I, you know, he was also a quarterback. I remember watching a Cal who maybe it deteriorated for him, but he was very good under pressure in terms of the mechanics of maneuvering and finding an open man. Um, yeah. And so you look at Stafford, and I think he may be more mobile and he may be tougher than Goff in terms of a bigger guy who can take more punishment, maybe, because. He's broken his back twice in consecutive seasons, and he's 33 years old. But what happens if this offensive line isn't better and he gets the crap beat out of him? And basically, we're going to see Sean McVay out of the NFL temporarily and on TV Um, because I I, I think that this is a make-or-break thing, and I'm not totally sold on it as much as I like Stafford the player because I'm worried about McVay. And then when you go to the golf side, I'll just mention this because... I, I think I had I kind of had a bone to pick about the whole Dan Campbell hiring. Like, you know, I I mentioned this on Twitter a couple of weeks ago. People were going off about Dan Campbell and his whole biting the kneecaps off thing. And I understand it that, that that may be weird for some people. I guess you know, uh, you know, but at the same time, I just looked at it and said, it's Detroit. He's trying yep. to appeal to a blue collar city. Um, I know what blue collar cities look like and how they think about stuff and most people didn't seem to bat an eye about that until the national media came on and most of the national media you know save um who's that guy the the wall street journal reporter who apparently you know has said that he's done all these things um but i'm saying if you've never like hired people managed people um you know trained people then you know but most of those people haven't who are in the media but they're going to sit there and comment about a guy in a five-minute press conference, and really only go after the two final two minutes, and right. ignore the parts where he talked about what type of people he wants to hire, what his philosophy is about hiring people and recruiting and getting players, and what type of players those are, and all those things were very um, great points. And then he just—they asked him about the attitude of the team, you know, what kind of attitude he wanted to, you know, foster, and people were like, "Well, the team's these pros aren't going to go for that kind of." tough coaching talk. And I'm like, dude, this is not varsity blues and John Voigt Who's up on right. stage. You know, you're like, literally you've watched that one too many times and equated it to this, this thing, you know, Dan, one of the things that Campbell talked about was, you know, I want to make sure and hire coaches who aren't at odds at one another. Everyone praised the Browns hires, you know, before Stefanski and look what happened there. When you had a bunch of guys in the room who had egos and couldn't work together. And, you know, Campbell was talking about we don't want to do that that's what I learned from Sean McVay is you get coaches who work well together it doesn't matter the resume is less important than the skills to be able to be compatible and then I want players who I know who they are every day as opposed to Mm -hmm. what they can be you know on certain days and not know what those days are you know and you know those are things that Mike Tomlin was good at those are things that Pete Carroll has been good at those are things that um, Bill Parcells was especially great at um and I and Joe Gibbs was good at this. Joe Gibbs didn't have a quarterback who was a great quarterback when he won all those Super Bowls you know so he, Joe Theismann might have been the best quarterback he had you know and so when I look at this, does that mean Dan Campbell's going to be a good coach? I don't know, but I know that you know you look at golf and we see what's gone on with Brian Tannehill and his resurgence, there's a possibility that golf can golf can, can get better. It just depends on what they do with the rest of this team. I honestly think this team's going to get torn down to the studs and with the six year contract that they gave Campbell and that he demanded, basically he knows what he's trying to do here. And he knows that golf is probably not the answer, but he can help them arrive at the answer.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think that's exactly right. You know, with respect to the Campbell press conference, I had the tweet set to go. I didn't send it, but I was like, this guy's going to be the first NFL coach slash mayor we will ever see because he was both going to be the head coach of the Detroit Lions and the mayor of Detroit. Like, and, and you're exactly right. Like he was tapping into that blue collar mentality of that city. And this is an organization that you talk to anybody that covers the Lions. Everybody that's a fan of the Lions, Jeff raised for example, he'll tell you, look, they needed a full on culture change. Yeah. Like, top to bottom. I um, mean, you're not going to get it with the ownership, but you might get it with the head coach and the general manager going on down. And so I think these are two great hires, uh, both Holmes and Campbell. I think, like you said, that six-year contract tells you that they have a vision of this being a long turnaround. If golf works out fantastic. You know, you look at that contract, he will be a relatively inexpensive starting quarterback option for you. If it pans out, if it doesn't, you're probably going to have an early draft pick next year. Plus you've got these future first rounders. Like you can make some things happen via the draft. And who knows, you know, if more teams decide to go the, the Rams route of forgo in the future for the present, you might even get some more first rounders along the way. You never know. And so, you know, I, I think they've, they've put themselves in a position where they have multiple pathways to be good again. And I think the smart franchises do that. Would you go all in on like one player or one idea, and you give yourself just one shot at greatness as a team, it doesn't always pan out. It might, but it might not. Detroit has more pathways, and I think that's good for them.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting. I mean, yeah, they're probably going to lose Marvin Jones. They're probably losing Kenny Galladay. Um, you know, they have Quintez Cephas and TJ Hawkinson, which aren't bad um, young talents to to begin with. Um, and certainly they have DeAndre Swift, and
1: so that's that's pretty and nice. And you're picking it at seven, which yeah. means – you're firmly in whether it's, you know, Devonta Smith, Jaden Waddle, Jamar Chase. You're firmly in the range to get a top-flight receiving talent. If you do lose out on those two receivers and you want to address it early, there you go. There are some guys, day two, day three, you could add two. Like, you could get some pieces. Yeah. And, you know, certainly the, cer- the offense
0: can be decent. You know, the defense, on the other hand, that's where – they were record breakingly bad, and so yeah, that's well. that's where they're going to have to that we're going to have to address. But yeah, moving forward, I mean, the Senior Bowl. Listen, neither of us went. We talked about it pre beforehand, but I know you covered practices. I read some of your excellent work at TD Wire, you know, talking about you know what you've seen. I watched some wide receiver drills a little bit in between my own tape study of other players. But what were your impressions of the week?
1: Uh, any in terms of players or whatever? I mean, I, I think you know the names I'll mention were the names you've probably heard, right? Whether it's Dwayne Eskridge, who I thought had a fantastic week on film, Kadarius um, Tony, even though it looks like he's stumbling at times with the way he runs, like he just gets open. I was very and I I know you mentioned Amari Rogers, the Clemson receiver. I was very impressed with him. I thought he had a fantastic week. Um, two guys I wasn't expecting to look good because um, I really didn't. Have, Hadn't done a ton of work on him. Maybe you have. Or Palmer, the kid from Tennessee, who might be an X. uh, Might be a bigger-bodied X-type receiver, but moves extremely well. And uh, Trayvon Grimes from Florida. I was very impressed with his ball skills. He had a a red zone fade where he had to make an adjustment to a throw. uh, Moved extremely well. Um, I was impressed with him. Uh, Michael Carter, the UNC back. I think that kid's James White 2.0. Like And that kid will have a long NFL future as a result of that. Uh, Felton, the UCLA kid. Um, yeah. You know, if, if you can, like, might be Naheem Hines, 2.0 in a sense, because they're built similarly. Hines is used more as a running back. Felton might be more of a receiver, but intriguing option. Uh, defensively, Cameron Sample from Tulane, uh, the defensive lineman. He That was one of those moments where he flashed some hand moves, and immediately I'm like, okay, who's this kid? I'm like asking everybody I can find out, who is this kid? Has anybody watched him? Finally, some people were kind enough to give me some, some film on him. Both uh, Mark Jarvis gave me some film, uh, and Matt Holder gave me some film. Shout out to those guys so I could watch him a little bit. Uh, Cameron Sample stood out. And, of course, look, you're not going to get a Division three guy like myself to ignore the fact that Quinn Miners, the kid down from Wisconsin Whitewater, went down to the Senior Bowl and won the week. Like, he legitimately won the week. Um, and, you know, he has that mentality of a finisher. Duke Weather probably loves this kid where he's going to get you to the ground and fall on top of you and just finish every play. He broke a bone in his hand and, like, demanded to play in the game. Like, he's out there at the practices, showing the belly. Like, shout out to him. Shout out to Owen Reese um, at Reese Draft on Twitter who coached him at UW Whitewater. It was yeah. telling me last summer, he's like, look, you're going to watch this kid. I'm telling you, he's going to be good. And Owen was right. This kid's legit. He's going to go on day two. I loved it. I loved it. So we, it was, it was, you know, disappointing to not be down there is very disappointing to not, you know, grab a booth with you at saucy Q's and sit there for three hours and just, you know, vamp for, you know, what we do here, just without a recorder. Um, I hated that part of it. I hated that part of it. But it was still nice to see the week. You know, kudos to everybody that went down there. It seemed like most people, for the most part, stayed safe. Um, but those were some of the guys that stood out to me. What about you?
0: Yeah, I certainly love the list of guys that you mentioned there. And certainly Palmer was one I ended up watching a good bit of tape on after watching his practices because he was very physical and he did a, he did a strong job of using his footwork to match what his physicality is. So I love how you talk about him as a bigger X. I think that makes total sense. Um, yeah. A guy like Eskridge is interesting to me. I've always liked his game. He's a, I've, I've joked that he's a little punk in terms of blocking. He likes to instigate and get people under. He gets he gets under their skin, and then he starts playing like within them. He like goes just outside the line. He's kind of like a little Bill Lambier. He'll go yeah. outside the line. He'll get under your skin. He'll try and get you to punch back. And then he'll start playing you hard, and you're already riled up. And then they start taking shots at him. Um, but Super Speed, you know, certainly a, a guy who his hands technique I think needs to get a little bit better. He drops some passes that he shouldn't. Um, but he has he's a very interesting, promising guy that that I'm I'm fascinated with. Um, you know, some of the other guys that you mentioned. I mean, I I think, you know. Michael Carter, yeah, the James White 2.0 totally on point um, in terms of what his skills what he has to offer. I, I heard from Cecil that Khalil Herbert looked pretty darn good. Yeah um, and that's a guy that I think he kind of reminds me of a, of a Dalvin Cook style of player you know that curvy linear movement, the ability to to really um, read angles well and he has the speed and the stamina with his speed to be able to cross the length and width of the field and still look as fast after breaking through contact or making multiple people miss 20, 30, 40 yards later than he did at the beginning of the play. Um so I think he's a guy that is worth keeping an eye on. Um you know, the, so it's a wait, wait, wait. your boy Trey Sermon.
1: Oklahoma. No, no, no. Oh,
0: Mordre Stevenson. Yeah. Every time
1: I mentioned him, I mentioned you. I mean, he looked good.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. He absolutely did look good. Um, And that's, you know, he's probably moving up. I think he's moving up in the conversation for a lot of people. Probably is maybe a top five to seven back in this class, which is, um, you know, I think is worth what he was. You talked about Grimes, and I've watched Grimes. I didn't watch him this week. I watched him this week. He was smooth this week. But what always stood out to me is, I mean, this was a five-star prospect, I think, who went to Ohio State and then transferred to Florida. And he just had injuries, but when you watch him, you can tell that he's not completely refined with, you know, the line of scrimmage type of work off the jam. He's not completely refined as a route runner, but he's smooth. And he's really good around the ball. Um, yep. I, I do agree with you. I think this is a guy that can grow into becoming something more than what, what he is at this stage of the game. Um, you know, I've, I've spent a lot of time walk watching guys, Mark, who weren't at the senior bowl this week and who were kind of smaller school guys, but one guy that really stood out to me, and I just would love to hear, I am going to ask you uh, I'd love to know your thoughts on quarterbacks, obviously, too, if you've watched any of them at the Senior Bowl or if you just decided, forget it, I'm not doing that anymore. Um, but, but you know, one of them was Jamie Newman because I kept hearing people talk about him. But, you know, a small school guy that I wish was at the Senior Bowl but it's such a loaded class of wide receivers that he just wasn't going to get it is Trey Walker at San Jose State. If If you get a chance to watch him, he's kind of like if, He's about Isaac Bruce's dimensions. So, but I'm not gonna, as I mentioned in the article, I'm not gonna compare him to Isaac Bruce. But like, if you took Tyler Lockett and said that was his absolute ceiling upside if everything went right in his career, um, and then you could put Keelan Cole as the midpoint guy and maybe Kenny Bell as like the as the bottom end player, I'd say he's somewhere between Lockett and Cole. Like, I think he has a shot to be. A guy who could make a roster um, and maybe be a contributor um, and surprise people. This guy goes up and gets the ball extremely well. He's tough as a blocker, even for his size. Um, He's willing to get after it. He's very good in the open field. Um, He's a ball winner. I mean, like he's he's a contested catch player, and he's done it against SEC opponents. He's done it in uh, the Mountain West. I'm just, I'm really impressed with what I've seen from this kid. Um, So, you know, that's just a guy that I wish was at the Senior Bowl. And I want to mention to folks who's somebody, you know, what, what about some of these quarterbacks? And specifically, I'm just curious about Jamie Newman or Sam Ellinger. These are guys that are kind of below the, the top players that, that people are looking at.
1: Yeah, I mean, first of all, I'm very excited to dive into Walker. I saw that you had done some stuff on him. I haven't got a chance to look at him yet, but I'm very curious now, you know, especially given what you just said about him. Um you know, as for the quarterbacks down there, like I think, yeah, like Jones had the best week. Um, I have reservations about Mac Jones, um, which will become apparent over the course of this draft cycle. But I do think for all the things we were talking about at the start of the show, I'm not so sure that Jones is there. Um, Can I ask you get- this?
0: Yeah, go. Can I ask you about, about Jones? Is Jones a type, I've seen him and what I saw was a guy who like, he understands one concept. He understands the other concept, you know, that are kind of opposing things. But then when it's time to put those things together and fuse them on the field, it's like, he doesn't see it. Like I, I, I see him as a guy who like the best way I'd put it is. Imagine like dinner conversation, you know, having good repartee, you might have facts, you might have humor, but you don't know how to meld those two things together on the fly to as somebody's talking to you. So when I see him on the field, he'll have, like, say, a backside deep crosser, he'll have a, a corner blitz coming off the front side, and that's going to leave open that all that space on that front side. And he doesn't put two and two together that he he could hit that backside crosser and it's going to be a huge play.
1: I've written and I've talked about how he to me is Kirk Cousins. And that he is that guy that if you go by the book, (laughs) you'll be okay. And so when he sees that, you know, blitz, you know, he's going to do what he's supposed to do in the moment and not go color outside the lines or become a chef or, you know, be the truck versus the trailer or whatever quarterback analogy you or anybody else wants to use and sort of create like he's going to do oh you know if x happens then y he's a robot he's kirk cousins and if that's what you want great are you drafting that at eight are you drafting that at seven are you drafting that at 15.
0: no i'm running out of the end zone
1: yeah (laughs) i don't know if you're doing that i just don't know if you're doing that and so You know, while there are people out there that have been in and around the league for years saying that he's not getting out of the top 10, okay, like that will probably happen because as as we've alluded to a lot and we've talked about a lot, if you draft Mac Jones, Alabama quarterback, national champion in the top 10, you probably don't get fired if it doesn't pan out. If you draft Trey Lance, if you draft Jamie Newman, if you draft one of those guys, it might. If you draft Trey Lance over Mac Jones and it doesn't work out, people are going to say, how could you draft an FCS quarterback with one year to game over this Alabama kid. Like, that's the risk that people might not be willing to take. I'll tell um, you how. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. But yeah, I, I hear you. So, so, yeah, I mean, that's yeah. where I'm at with Mac Jones. Like, from my biased New England perspective, if they draft Mac Jones at 46, I'm fine with it. I'm fine with it. Sure. If they draft Mac Jones at 15, I'm extremely worried. I'm extremely bored because he might be Kirk Cousins 2.0. That's how I see him. And it's just like the situation that you put in front of us. Like that, that tracks with me 100%. Okay,
0: cool. So what about a guy like Newman? Did he help himself out at all? Or is it just kind of more of the same with what he was when he was at Wake Forest?
1: I think it's more and more of the same. I thought he was really good. The first day I thought it was really, I thought he won the first day as far as that goes, but we all know that the first day is that baseline day, right? Yeah, It's that you're getting a feel for throwing to new receivers, new route concepts, new routes. He looked good, but then when everybody was sort of all on the same page, that's when he started to fade. And it was like, yeah, Mac Jones looked like the best of the bunch. If I'm a team that has an established quarterback, um, but I want to take that sort of developmental lottery ticket pick, out of the guys in that tier, whether it's him or Book or Sam Alger or who Ever else, Felipe Franks that was down there. I bet on Newman just because he has that athleticism and I think you can create something with him. Um, But lottery tickets are like third-round developmental quarterbacks. They don't always or even often or even seldom cash in. I mean, you got to hit it exactly right. So, you know, while he looked good the first day to me, and again, I wasn't down there, and you do get a better feel for like seeing it and seeing the ball come out of their hands live and stuff. Um, it did seem like he sort of started to fade a little bit. He had two bad interceptions in team drill on Wednesday um, Well, he committed the Cardinals sin, throwing late over the middle, which is just, you know, quarterback in one point, well, well even one-on-one, so, yeah. Yeah, Sam
0: Ellinger is the guy that I would probably want to take on day three. If I could get him day three, I don't think I will, but I'd like for him to, to fall that far, maybe round yeah. six, round seven. I'd love to take him and see what he could grow into. I think his, I think he makes some awful deep throws. Like he has, yeah. like he has some really bad, either decisions or accuracy in that aspect of the game. But there's some other parts of his game that I like, like his toughness, the way he works a pocket, the way that he can um, throw on the move a little bit. There's some things that with his game that I think have promise, but. He's not a guy that I'm trying to build around. I'm just hoping he right. somewhere lands
1: near me. But And look, you and I, we love the day three developmental QBs. I mean, we just do. It's just yeah. the more I've done this, the more I realize that, like, the yeah. Brett Rippins of the world aren't getting that shot. No. And even Brett Rippin had a shot on a Thursday night against the Jets, and I was living in the moment for, like, two throws. Yeah. And then, yeah, so. But hey, but it, is, but it is.
0: It is, and we'll we'll wait another twenty years for a Tom Brady to come around because that's probably how long it'll, it. That's may what everybody's take.
1: chasing. That's yep. what everybody's chasing. They're chasing the next, the first Mahomes, the next Mahomes at the top of the draft,
0: and the next Brady at the back yeah. of the draft. And meanwhile, they're going to get a lot of Kirk Cousins and Mitchell Trubisky's and Marcus Mariotas and Jameis yep. Winston's. But that's yep. just the and way it a lot goes. More of those. That's yep. the way it goes. Yeah, for sure. So listen, we've got we got a little bit of time to kill and it's been, we got the off season going on here. Um, What has been, what has been notable for you about your off season in terms of the draft? You know, what are you looking forward to doing or what have you been doing that you've been enjoying? What have you been learning that you've anything that any insights you've gained that have been new for you? I just kind of want to open it up and give you an opportunity to, Um, That's
1: a fascinating question. I I think for me, um, I'm always excited about the off-season once the season actually ends to learn. Um, I will admit that I have done something in the past two weeks, which might be the nerdiest that I've ever done. Um, But I've alluded to the fact that I will read playbooks. I talk about it on shows. I mention it in articles. Well, I actually, via the magic that is Staples Online, I got two different playbooks printed out and bound in a three ring binder for me, um, delivered um, within you know hours. It was incredible. Um, so I've got some defensive and offensive playbooks that that I'm gonna start reading that I actually have started reading and flagged and tabbed and highlighted because, Matt, I'm old, I'm trying to scan through on a computer screen and actually learn something. I need the feel of the book in front of me. So I'm always excited to like just dive in and just start learning stuff again. Um, because the more and more I do this, the more and more I realize while it might sound like I know what I'm talking about, there's more to this game that I may never know than I actually know right now. Um, so I always like spend the time in the off season trying to learn stuff. But as far as this draft class, I'm excited to do more than just quarterbacks. I mean, I'm known for like kind of being the quarterback guy or one of the quarterback guys. Um, and there's tremendous people that do tremendous work covering quarterbacks, whether it's a a Derek Clawson or a Benjamin Solak or you, or all the other people that covered this position so well, but I'm starting to get a better feel for other positions. I will never understand running back, especially like I'll never come close to knowing running back the way you do. I, I just, I just know that. But positions like wide receiver and defensive line, like I'm starting to pick up more, the more and more I watch those. That's why like the senior bowl film, was fantastic to have um the way we got it this year because i could watch a one-on-one drill between a defensive lineman and a guard and just watch it from every angle and start to pick up things that i had never seen before whether it's hand placement or how they shift the weight on their feet or those little things that go by me a million times a day when i'm watching quarterbacks because i think quarterbacks matter and i'm an idiot that thinks that um that I'm starting to pick up on. And so I'm excited to do more of that. I'm excited to watch more offensive line and defensive line play. And again, I will never know offensive line like a Jeff Schwartz or a Duke Manny Weather or Brandon Thorne or all the great people that cover that position and teach that position and know that position and scout that position. Uh, But to just start to fill in some of the knowledge base around quarterbacks, that's what I'm looking forward to. But what about you? Yeah, I mean, I think for me, it's been an ongoing thing with wide receivers. I've done, I've kind
0: of really opened up how much I ex- I examine um, releases and stems yeah. and route setups and really understanding the type of footwork and handwork that's used. And it's really dawned on me how many players actually use a great, have a great deal of vocabulary with using this before they even get to the NFL but the issue is not so much whether they know how to use it or whether they use it, but how they how effectively they use it right now, and who they face when they use it. It's just like the offensive lineman thing, where it's like they may have the techniques, but if they're not doing it against, you know, LSU's defensive front, and they're doing it against, you know, Tiffin's defensive front, right. that's a it's a, there's a difference there for the most part. You have to understand who they're playing against and how patient those guys are. So, you know, understanding that is important. Seeing guys like, seeing guys who get, you know, how well they maintain their line as a wide receiver, that's something that's really come to my attention is, you know, a, if they get an outside release, how likely are they going to get pinned to the boundary? Yeah. You know, because like Trey Walker's a good example of a guy that like, he takes an outside release and you can pretty much bet dollars to donuts that he's going to get pinned to the sideline by a good, by a good defensive player. Um, But then there are other guys out there who really own that sideline. Well, like a smaller guy, like um, Amir Smith-Marset's pretty good at owning the boundary. Um, You know, so those are some things that, you know, that I've been kind of looking into and have found um, enlightening in terms of watching those guys play after this weekend, I will pretty much be doing quarterbacks probably 18 hours a day, seven days a week as my second or third look. Yeah.
1: Very excited to start talking about this class with you because as it always happens, the quarterback takes are all over the place. Yes. Uh, Even with respect to Trevor Lawrence. So I'm, I'm very excited to see, your ultimate thoughts on this class.
0: Yeah. And because I mean, right now, I mean, as I mentioned to somebody on I did a podcast with some guys over at the pond, over the pond, you know, um, the first and five group. And yeah. I mentioned on that pod, I'm like, don't, you know, this isn't permanent. This isn't anything to really think about, but because I have so much more to watch with quarterbacks, but Trevor Lawrence is my highest graded guy right now. Not Trevor Lawrence, um Trey Lance. Trey Lance is my highest graded guy right now. Trevor Lawrence isn't far behind, but I know that there's things on their tape that I've seen, but haven't graded. And when I get to grade them, it will move them up or down. Um, Right. You know, it's just that I haven't officially, you know, marked all of that down with some of the stuff that I, that I do with my process. But yeah, that's probably, that's probably the biggest thing is like, adding different elements of tracking, like I'm tracking different types of tackles that running backs work through. Mm. I'm, I'm, I'm tracking different types of, um, you know, and getting, and this will be my first year of like doing that type of thing. I haven't tracked yards after contact. Um, That was something I planned on doing, but I had so much other stuff going on that I wanted to get this stuff, the, everything kind of straight with what I'm doing new right now before I ventured into that. But it'll be fun in like five to seven years as I continue tracking running back stuff, because I just don't like, like, you know, it's, I I don't like the stat services. They do great work. I mean, I, you know, I'll, I'll mention PFF. They do great work with a lot of stuff that they do, but you know, when you, it, it always rubbed me the wrong way that stat services like would slap, you know, somebody would look at someone fly swatting Saquon Barkley's oversized thigh and him getting a 70 yard gain and going that's yards yeah. after contact. Right. I I'd, I'd just be like, to me, that's like, that can't count that. Yeah. There's no way that can count. Give me the, you know, give me the hard yards. I want to see the hard yards with that. So I, I've tried to, I'm trying to focus on ways to, to look at the game differently and come up with some analytics on, from my own tracking right. that in five to seven you, years will be that way.
1: Yeah. I mean, I remember it was like a year or two ago when you told me how you were going to start tracking yardage after contact for running backs. and You were like, this isn't going to tell me anything this year. It's not going to tell me anything next year. It's going to tell me something seven years from now. Yeah, And I, I think that speaks to why you're respected in this space, why people respect your work. Is because you're doing this, your process is set up for years down the road. And you're gonna actually have actionable data from it and not just, hey, like the Saquon Barkley example. He averages 13 yards after a contact, but the bulk of those come when some you know safety swipes at his ankle as he runs by. Right. And so that's what that's what the hope will be.
0: So for the starter for starters, what I'm doing is breaking down tackles by by position type, you know, as he, are they reaps, raps, reaches, or hits, and then also eluding players. Um, So I'm tracking all of that and I'm doing it by defensive back, linebacker and defensive line um, so that you get a chance to see that kind of broken out. And so I'll have some fun data to talk about with that in this RSP. So I'm looking forward to kind of putting all that together and seeing how my rankings contrast with what the data will show because I'm pretty sure and I won't be changing it based on the data because it's one year like it'll I'll, I'll say for what it's worth I'll show up people the data and say for what it's worth you know Makai Sargent the five nine, two 208 pound back may be leading the league and or leading my sample of running backs in terms of um you know, breaking through wraps against defensive linemen in terms of percentage, you know. Right. But it's not gonna be anything I'm doing actionably with that data yet. Seven right. years from now, maybe I will. So yeah, that's those are the kind of the things there. So so yeah. Um anything you would like to to share with our audience in terms of anything that you've recently done or plugged that you would like people to check out. Um, um podcast, I- anything.
1: Now you know, you know what if I'm, I mean I do want to bring up um this just popped on Twitter, um, a statement from the Schottenheimer family that Marty Schottenheimer has been moved into hospice. Um and I know it's not the way we'd like to end a show, but you and I both are children of the eighties. Um, we both grew up watching, those, you know, Brown's teams. Um And I I did want to sort of bring that up and give you a chance to sort of talk about, you know, share anything you wanted to, because, you know, for me, Martin Schottenheimer was one of the people that helped cultivate my love for this sport from watching some of those games, watching some of those playoff games, watching the passion he had for those players, watching how he handled defeat, which is a lesson that I think is often lost. It's something that I, as a father, am trying to, you know, instill in my kids. You're not going to win all the time. You know, it's rare to win. Um, You don't see guys like Tom Brady come through and win seven Super Bowls all the time. More often, it's the Dan Marinos that, you know, I remember when Marino got to Super Bowl 19. Everybody thought, oh, yeah, he lost this one, but he'll be back. And he never got back. You know, life is loss. And football teaches that. And to see Schottenheimer deal with the drive, the fumble and all of that. Um, and come out on the other side, just a tremendous person a tremendous coach. And we've talked a lot about Schottenheimer and how he handled Drew Brees. Um, this is a man that I think did it the right way, did it his way and was one of the greatest to do it. And so I, I did want to mention that at the end and, you know, Matt, I'll defer to you. No, I, I, I'm glad you mentioned that. Um,
0: yeah. He was the reason that I love football. I think probably more than anything, I fell in love with the Cleveland Browns, even more so than I already had. I, I was a, I'm not the fan of football the way I was back in the eighties. And one of the things that I think I learned the most from Marty Schottenheimer, because when you looked at his teams, he had different types of quarterbacks. He would, he was willing to throw it down the field and be aggressive if he needed to be. He was willing to just pound the ball and be a physical running team. He was usually both um, in many respects, but he had a way of coaching that he inspired people. He didn't wear on people at all. I think teams were afraid, the organizations were afraid that he did, but he was a guy that if, if the front offices got out of the way, he built teams nobody wanted to play. And to me, it's not about, you know, we we're in a culture where we talk about winning, but I think true winning is about competing hard, competing hard and getting respect for for the the work that you do. And I think that the, the folks who are the folks who are more about he's won so many awards or he's won this these number of trophies or he's in the hall of fame. Um, Marty Schottenheimer and the way that the type of players he had, you could tell that the opposition didn't want to play his teams. And that when they did, they got tested. And that it's like watching fighters who are angry with each other and have all that pre-fight talk. And then after they go 12 rounds or 15 rounds back in the old days, they've got nothing but love for each other because they've been tested to their very limits and found out who they were through that opponent. Like that made them, and they they couldn't help but have love and respect for that person. And I think that his teams were like that. His teams Made you play at your very best, and maybe he didn't always he didn't win ultimately the highest honor. But to me, I think that it did. It taught me to like players like Steve McNair or Marshawn Lynch, or um, you know teams that teams that you just knew you were in it. You you had to be at the top of your game for sixty minutes. And you didn't know, and you didn't know what you would have to pull out from your reserves—things you didn't know you had in you. And I think that that's that's a bigger testament. I think the, the real winners are the competitors, um, people who are the ultimate competitors, the warriors who make their teams feel um, like nothing's impossible to come back from. You know that they can that. And I think he was one of those guys. And you could tell he cared about his players. He, You know, that he believed and cared in them and that he was. And so, yeah, I loved him. You know, he was a a former literature teacher. He was an English teacher who, you know, played linebacker. Um, And I think that when you look at that, an English teaching, you know, or literature teaching linebacker is probably very apropos for how he taught, how he coached. And the kind of teams that he had, they were, they were smart football teams that were gritty. And, and to me, I think that's, that's the ultimate compliment you can get is that you were, you were a gritty competitor and, and the people who were in the know, that's, that's all the honor you need. Not what, you know, the, the average beer slamming, you know, football fan who plays fantasy, but doesn't, but you know, does it on a very surface level, mm-hmm. you know, not the diehard fantasy folks, but you know what I mean? Like yep. just the surface level football fans.
1: Yeah. Those- I mean, I, I was trying to pull out, and I can't find it. I can't put my fingers on it right now, but there was a video that surfaced like a week or two ago of him during one of those Browns games on the sideline with his team around him and talking about how much he loved and respected them. Um And that's the kind of person he was. That's the kind of coach he was. That's the kind of coach that, he got his team into a position where game in and game out, they were going to put every their heart and their soul in it. Yeah. Um, and it takes a, a tremendous talent to be able to inspire grown men to do that. Um, this is an emotional game as you've written so eloquently about. Um, and Schottenheimer did that. Yeah, And, you know, just like, like you said, I mean, somebody that made me uh, a kid from new England love this game. You know, I wanted to be Elway but I wanted to play for Schottenheimer.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was heartbroken when they got rid of Schottenheimer. And I can, And it's why when people say Bill Belichick got run out of Cleveland and what a joke that was, and now uh, the Browns fans regret that, well, that's because they had Marty Schottenheimer and they didn't want to lose Marty Schottenheimer. Um, and, and they were still feeling, even though they had Bud Carson in between that period, They were, they still missed Schottenheimer. And so having a young Bill Belichick, they didn't know what they had in him for sure. But at the same time, if you really look at it, there's good reason why they were like, yeah, Bill, that you're too, that's too tough of an act for you to follow in in Cleveland. And so um, he is, he's going to be a tough act to follow for anyone. And, you know, the, the best obviously to his family and to his former teammates and players who you know who knew him well and who will be mourning his his loss when that eventually happens and you know on that note you know we hope that you guys are you know healthy and happy and that you know and if you're having difficulties at the same time hopefully you have the people around you to get through them if not seek some people out don't be alone in that Um, matter. Um, You can always, Mark has always mentioned his DMs are open on Twitter and, you know, and that's something that, you know, if you need some advice, you know, you can certainly email it and email us or contact us and we'll, we'll give you our two cents for whatever it's worth. Um, and maybe suggest some folks who might be worth a little bit be more. Better. Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: but we can. But but we, we can certain, point you in the right direction. We more we, than else. we we can. We can certainly do that at least with some enough life of ex, experience from that standpoint. Um, but listen, the the RS, the Super Bowl is uh, is here. You know, it'll be on Sunday. Should be a good time. Hopefully, um, hopefully you enjoy that. And the RSP is available. You can get that for um 2195 or you can get the two-year projections and dynasty ranking complete dynasty rankings for twenty four ninety five or you can get both. I see a lot of people getting both. Um and that's great. Um, you know it's much appreciated. And I and if you're new to this, I know I don't talk it up a ton, but if you like this podcast, if you like the YouTube channel, if you like what I do on my site or on Twitter, um that's shit compared to what I do with the RSP. So <laughs> <laughs> that's the best tag I've ever I <laughs> did a Super Bowl ad. Yep, I'm just it's it's by far the best thing I do, um, in this space. So it blows that other stuff away, um, and most people are shocked when they get it in their first timers. So uh, on that note, hope you guys have a, a wonderful weekend and take care.